This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration wants federal contractors to pay their employees a minimum of $15 an hour. For some contractors, it's a moot issue. For others, it would be a lot of implications for profits and competitiveness. Here with analysis on a couple of topics, the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, let's start with the $15 wage. I suppose that high-end COBOL programmers and people that can engineer information systems are probably making more than $15 an hour anyhow. So what's your take on this whole gambit? Well, first, Tom, PSC strongly supports paying a living wage to uh, to all personnel and particularly contractor personnel. So we think this is a, a useful undertaking for the administration to put out. But there's three dynamics there that come into play. One is the one you mentioned. Most of our member companies who are government contractors are already in a very competitive marketplace with respect to talent, right? And so uh, the the price is is determined at least as much by the marketplace as it is by uh, by by rule. The second thing is that the contracting process itself tends to drive costs down, not up. In fact, most companies don't win by proposing higher wages. They win by proposing lower wages. And so I think the administration has a very good opportunity and affirmative responsibility to rethink the basic nature of how you pick a best value contract winner, looking at performance and results rather than input. No indication from the executive order that they understand that and that they recognize that, that, you know, the leading cause of low wages is, in fact, LPTA contracts that drive bidders to low costs. So if the government is willing to change that, that's a big step. And then the third thing that comes into play, you know, so the executive order put January of 2022 as the implementing date for new solicitations and put March of 2022 for the exercise of awards under existing contracts and task order contracts. And so the question then becomes, who's going to pay for those additional costs? If that's built in, if it's built into your rates, if it's built into your fixed price contract bids, there have to be constructive changes that will cover those costs. None of those questions have been answered yet, but we've raised all of them with the administration. Because there is the phenomenon not unknown of where when the government is asking for bids, they will tell a contractor, tell all bidders, in this cell, this is the value you shall insert. And so that could be $15 an hour minimum or something like that. They'd have to turn it into actual bidding language. But that's not an unknown phenomenon. No. And, and, you know, January 2022 sounds like a long ways off, right? But we're already in May. And uh, the process for issuing new federal acquisition regulation language um, often takes longer than seven or eight months. And so we're looking forward to a, a dialogue with the administration. And in particular, we're looking forward to the actual implementing language here. Yeah, I mean, here we are almost at May Day. Next thing you know, it'll be Labor Day, and then it's Thanksgiving, and then New Year's Eve. So yeah, the time is going fast this year. Time's going to go fast here, and we look forward to their implementation proposals. And I wanted to ask you briefly about Jason Miller. Now, that is not the Jason Miller that works as our colleague here at Federal News Network, but the one who has been confirmed as Deputy Director for Management the DDM at the Office of Management and Budget, because we haven't really seen a presidential management agenda yet. We can probably guess what it's going to look like, but from the Biden administration, but maybe this Jason Miller will push that along. We're optimistic that he will. You know, for for contract and contractors, the president's management agenda has the cross-cutting priorities across the agencies that matter a whole lot. This is how uh, the White House sets its priorities and flows them down through the Office of Management and Budget into programs across the board. Um, 
and the last two administrations, the Obama administration and the Trump administration, both put a lot of energy into both integrating uh, priorities uh, across agencies in those cross-agency priority goals, the so-called CAP goals uh, that are built into the president's management agenda, and perhaps more importantly over time, beginning to report publicly on a quarterly basis data that would allow us to track implementation. This is important for companies as they prioritize their investments for bidding on future projects, and it's important for competition across the agencies to know what the priorities are. We've not seen an update in quite some time. We're optimistic that the uh, appointment of a new DDM, Deputy Director for Management, will reinvigorate not only the process of the President's Management Agenda, but get the items into play so that uh, they can match up with the budgets and the appropriations. We're speaking with David Berto, President and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And what's going on on the vaccine front? Because earlier it was the contractors trying to get the government's help to get their people, the crucial people, vaccinated. That problem has largely vanished now that the supplies are up there. We have pulsed a number of our members to see, uh, can your employees still get uh, vaccines? Are they having trouble getting vaccines? And this is kind of a regional area. There are some parts of the country where you still have a wait list. You still have trouble uh, getting, particularly if you have a day job and you don't have the ability to go wait in line at a mass vaccination center for hours and hours at a time. But I think the problem of access to vaccines is diminishing. Of course, eligibility does not imply access. Just because you're eligible doesn't mean you're going to get it. What we're also beginning to see, though, is the government's very interested in knowing how many contractors have been vaccinated. So what we're starting to see is contract at a time questions going out um, somewhat at random. It doesn't look to me like there's an organized structure in this perspective from the government's point of view of, of how many of your employees have been vaccinated. The implication is access to work, access to facilities will be determined in part by whether or not you've been vaccinated. There's no policy on this. We've raised a number of times, both at the agency level, Defense Department and other agencies, and at the, at the White House and the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, that we need to have consistent guidance across the board, and not only consistent by contract, but what you apply to contractors and what you apply to federal civilian employees should be integrated and, uh, and, and make sense. So a lot of vacuum there, a lot of uncertainty. The more we're vaccinated, the more this is going to come into play. And I can see maybe a holographic sticker for your employee badge to get in saying, you know, I've been vaccinated. Well, you have this very real question of how do you confirm whether a vaccine has been received and, uh, and taken place or not? Um, there's been a pushback, obviously, on the vaccine passport and the other things in that regard. You know, those little white documents, those little white pieces of paper you get that have the CDC emblem on it. Uh, you can buy blank ones for sale, apparently, on eBay uh, and, uh, uh, and o- over the Internet. So verification of vaccination is a really critical factor. It's especially a critical factor if there's going to be a requirement for vaccination for contractors. We're continuing to work with the government on behalf of our members on that. All right. And as the Taliban has advertised, it's going to shoot back now if we don't get out of there even quicker, the troops. Your members are seeing USAID new contracts possibly coming through for work in that part of the world. Five-year contracts? We've got a real dichotomy in Afghanistan with respect to contracting. The Defense Department is withdrawing and is withdrawing faster. The embassy has speculated in public as to uh, how many people will will still be in the embassy in Kabul uh, after the military leaves, because, of course, the military is partially responsible for uh, for security and, and will continue to be responsible for security. Uh, as they are nation uh, worldwide. Um, but so contracts that are maybe 
a big question on the Defense Department side, what's going to continue, how do you support the Afghan uh, government, the Afghan military through DOD contracts, but on the civilian agency side, um, there's a rush to issue new contracts, new task orders, and our members have a couple of big challenges. Number one is, what do you assume about the future of Afghanistan as you put your fixed price bid together? And of course, if you're going to have to put security costs and legal costs into your bid, uh, what's a reasonable assumption? How do you remain both competitive and be able to win an award? And most importantly, how do you secure your personnel so that, in fact, they'll, they'll still be there tomorrow after you award the contract today? These are huge unanswered questions that need to be answered quickly. Time, the clock is ticking. It may be that the May 1st deadline is gone, uh, but the September 11th deadline is looming over us. And so it really needs more attention by the administration, and we're hoping to get that soon. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, 
quite honestly, at the time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.